Hello, and welcome back to the Come Follow Me Bible Challenge. It's Pastor Jeremy Howard here again with you from Orchard Hills Bible Church in Payson, Utah. It's a new year. It's a New Testament. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is reading through the New Testament this year, and so here I am again like I was last year through the Old Testament, joining some of you on your journey of reading through the New Testament, offering you some thoughts from a Bible church pastor. I have uh, not been, of course, on top of it here to start the year because this all began in the first week of January, and here I am recording this on January 20th, a little bit behind. And I'm thinking um, there will be two episodes that come out this week, but uh, this is the first one talking about the deity of Christ and his virgin birth, and I think next week we'll look at his baptism. So we'll get caught up a little bit, and uh, hopefully for that first week of February we'll just be right on track. That first week of February we are to look at Matthew 4 and Luke 4 and 5. But uh, this week I'm going to consider some thoughts from Luke 1 and John 1. And uh, we can start with John 1. We can, in fact, start with John 1 Verse 1, if I was to pick a verse in the Bible where Latter-day Saints and evangelical Christians have perhaps the biggest disagreement, it might be John 1, 1. Uh, I've said before that I think we, at the end of the day, end up disagreeing about every Bible verse because our definitions are so different. But as far as the most impactful and significant disagreements, John 1, 1 is right up there at the top. Now, um, if you followed along last year at all with the Old Testament, you might remember that the episodes that were in Genesis were, um, were a little more intense as far as comparing and contrasting our belief systems, comparing the Latter-day Saint view of how God created all things with what evangelical Christians believe based on the Bible only. But after that, maybe the tensions kind of eased off for a while, maybe popped up here and there throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Um, but Genesis was probably the most exciting out of all those in that sense. Well, pretty much the whole New Testament is going to be full of that tension. So I'm just going to give you a warning if you're planning on listening to this uh, through this year and following along. Pretty much every episode is going to contain some significant differences that we have. And we shouldn't be afraid of differences. We shouldn't view that as a bad thing. We shouldn't say, oh no, that's awful. Can't we just focus on the things we have in common? Um, no, we, we should look at differences. It's very important to do that because our differences are significant. If the differences weren't significant, then yeah, there would be a conversation of, let's just set things to the side. But when we're talking about the nature of God, the nature of Jesus Christ, the nature of human beings, how human beings are reconciled to God, how human beings get to heaven, what the church is. These are very significant topics. These are not topics that are minor. So um, my goal is to just look at the Bible with you, dear listener, and see what we get. What does God say through his word, the Bible. So let us start with John 1.1. Here's that really amazing verse that I was building up there. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was 
God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I've added here on the screen for those watching, just in case there's any confusion or doubt, we are talking about uh, Jesus, because later on in the chapter, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Word became flesh. We recognize that this is, of course, Jesus. So let's go back here and consider verse 1. In the beginning was, and you know what? We can, we can actually say, in the beginning was the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And the Son of God, that's, that's who the Word is talking about, the Son of God was with God. Okay, now that's an important point that we can dwell on. He was with God. So we're talking about two distinct persons. Uh, we're talking about some sort of arrangement here where uh, the Son of God is not the God of this phrase, but he is with God. Okay, interesting. And the Word was God. Well, now that seems contradictory because we just got done saying there's a distinction here because they were with each other. But now there's a, a similarity, there's an overlap, there's an e equation, you could say. The Son of God was God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was both with God and God. Now that is a lot to chew on for a bit, isn't it? Well, let's think about this phrase, in the beginning, since that's where it starts, in the beginning. When John says in the beginning, we can't help but notice that this is similar to how the whole Bible begins, all the way back in Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. So what is the beginning, according to these Bible writers, Moses and John? Well, this would, of course, put our minds back to time before us, a time before all of creation. Because in the beginning is when God created. So this puts us way back, all right? We weren't there at the beginning. No creature was there at the beginning. At the beginning, there was God and God alone. That's an important point to hold on to. So in the beginning was the Word. If there was no creature who was around in the beginning, if there was no creature who existed at the beginning, then we must recognize here that the Word being present at the beginning must not be a creature. Because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, in the beginning was the Word. And as we read through more of the New Testament, we'll see more of this theology. Maybe you feel like I'm, I'm jumping to conclusions. Well, wait a second. That could mean the beginning of creation, you might say. Well, um, there's actually a reason to consider that this is uh, not talking about in the beginning of creation. In fact, the context tells us that, and I'll get there in a moment. But in the beginning was the Word. There he was, not a creature, at the beginning. And the Word was with God. So there has to be some sort of distinction here going on. And unless we dart, or not unless, I should say lest, we dart to the conclusion that, well, okay, this means that there's no deity in the Word, that the Word is not divine, because God is divine, God is deity, and the Word, well, he was with deity, so he must not be deity. Lest we do that, we have to interpret this phrase with the phrase that follows. The Word was God. 
divine. The Son of God is deity. So the Word was both with God and was God. Now, my Trinitarian theology kicks in here, again, taking into account not just this one verse in a vacuum, but the greater revelation of God throughout the Bible, that you have Father, Son, and Spirit being spoken of in the Bible. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. Okay, None of these persons are the other person. They are distinct. Yet at the same time, each one is called God, and the Bible is emphatic that there is only one God. So as I interpret this verse, I see it to mean that there is but one God, and yet there's a distinction between persons, the Word being a person, and seemingly God the Father being the Father. The Son of God was with God the Father. And the Word was God. So that means not that the two persons lose their distinction. John is not collapsing the claim that he just made in the following phrase. So he's not saying there was a distinction, but actually there wasn't a distinction. That can't be what John's saying. He was a logical, rational human being who was writing to a particular audience to make a specific point. I don't think he would have just... uh, totally tried to confuse everybody here in the opening sentence (laughs) of his gospel. But instead, it seems as though what he's saying is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, existed before he became flesh. He existed as deity, and yet there's something distinct about him that separates him from God the Father. Now again, the greater context of the New Testament and the whole Bible will give us this theology in more detail. I mean, I, we're eventually going to get to Colossians 1, Philippians chapter 2, John chapter 10. I mean, lots of different places we're going to go where we're going to see this. But this is just an initial watershed moment for you as you're reading the Bible. How do you interpret John 1.1? you got to come to a conclusion here on how you're going to interpret this. Because if you... Um, take a different view than the view that I just espoused. And you say, well, wait, no, wait a second. There has to be something other than Trinitarian theology going on here. You are going to end up in a very different place than I am on extremely significant issues. And so I kind of like that about the Gospel of John, that from the very first verse, before he throws down any context, it's just, bang, here's the start of the letter. He gives us this big decision that we have to make. How are we going to interpret this? What are we going to do with the person of Jesus? And you can see here in the the New American Standard Bible that I use, the 1995 version, that they give John 1 the heading, the deity of Jesus Christ. That's what this is all about. Well, let me click read full chapter here to give us the verses that follow. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Okay, so this is basically just reiterating in a different way uh, what was said in one one. He was in the beginning. We get that phrase in the beginning from the first verse also, with God. And we just read in the first verse, the word was with God. All right. Now look at verse 3. All things came into being through him. And in case that's not strong enough, Let's kind of state it inversely here. 
the Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, here's where I think we really get the force that this is not some sort of creation idea here in these first three verses. John is not saying, in the beginning, God created the Word. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. And verse 3 really helps us with that, doesn't it? Because all things came into being through the Word. And apart from the Word, nothing came into being that has come into being. So we're talking about how we get to creation, and how we get to creation is starting with the eternal existence of the Word. And through Him, all finite things come into existence. All creatures come into existence through Him. The Word is actually the Creator. You see this here? That there's a this, this grand distinction between Creator and Creature. And where's the Word falling, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, from the beginning of John's Gospel? Where's He falling on that grand divide? He's falling on the side of Creator. That's what we see at the beginning of John's Gospel. Pretty cool, huh? I think that's pretty cool. Well, we also have in John's Gospel, Jesus' high priestly prayer. And so I want to give some context to this conversation from there, too. So we're jumping ahead in John's Gospel to John chapter 17, verses 4 and 5. And Jesus here, after he's been born and he's a grown man, he's praying to the Father. And listen to what he says. John 17, starting at verse 4, Jesus prays, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with, here it is, the glory which I had with you before the world was. Again, we're going now back before creation. Jesus is existing as the Son of God, the eternal Son, existing before creation. He's the creator. He is not a creature. And in that pre-earthly existence where Jesus is existing, we're not existing there, but Jesus is there. The Son of God is there. He's existing in glory. He's having a, a glorified eternal existence in eternity past. And he's praying to his Father that the glory to come, that God would glorify him together with himself with the glory which I had with you before the world was, is what Jesus says. Now that's a pretty startling verse, especially if you know your Old Testament, because in Isaiah... I believe it's 42. Yeah, 42, 8. The Lord declares, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. Do you think Jesus knew that verse when he prayed that prayer to his father? That the Lord has said, Yahweh, the God of Israel, has said, I will not give my glory to another? If Jesus knew that verse and he was a creature, for him to say, glorify me together with yourself with the glory that I had with you before the world was, that would be a blasphemous statement. That would make Jesus a very, very bad teacher. It would make him a bad man to follow. It would be a, a, a terrible decision to seek after Jesus if he was a creature and, and said that he had glory with the Father before creation. 
But if the word is God and always has been God, as John teaches us from the beginning of his gospel, then what's our conclusion? Well, our conclusion here is that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, that he is God himself, fully, truly divine. And he has the same glory as the Father. The Father and the Son share in the same glory. There's one God, and there are three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, we're not talking about Spirit here because he's not coming up in these verses we're looking at. He's not in the the context of these passages. But we'll get there, trust me, in this New Testament study of ours. One God with one glory shared by three distinct persons. Very, very interesting. So that's what's going on with, uh, with Jesus before creation, before the world was. Well, now, of course, in the, uh, the lesson plan, <clears throat> what you end up running into in uh, Matthew 1, Luke 1, Matthew 2, Luke 2, is how this eternal Son of God comes into a creaturely existence by taking on a human body and living in a human body on the earth, being found in the likeness of a creature, taking on flesh. How does that happen? Well, we just had Christmas not that long ago. should be fresh on everybody's mind. The virgin birth. And so we have in the New Testament several passages that talk about the virgin birth. Christ was born of Mary. Mary was a virgin. Jesus' birth was extremely unique. And we have Gabriel visiting Mary in Luke chapter 1. And uh, I don't know if there's a way, a better way to do this. I'll just read verses 26 to 38. And I say I don't know if there's a better way to do this, meaning I think I just got to read all 13 verses here. And I know that's not the best listening content, but here you go. Luke 1, 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to, to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. How startled would you be? The angel comes right in and starts talking. Wow, that would be quite the experience. Verse 29. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Sounds amazing. Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, Well, how can this be? (laughs) Since I'm a virgin. Very natural response. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, Even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing 
will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel apart departed from her. All right, so how is the Son of God, the eternal Son, going to enter the world and take on a creaturely existence? For you and me, that would be difficult to figure out if it was up to us to make that work, but God did it. He made it work, and we get some detail here. In verse 35, it's told us that the Holy Spirit will come upon Mary. Now we have a mention of the Holy Spirit in our text that we're looking at today. He is the one coming upon Mary. That's important to note. Hang on to that. And the power of the Most High will overshadow, that's an interesting word, will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon Mary in this prophecy. He's the person who is at work here. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The power of the Most High. Interesting phrase. Um, but we recognize that the power of the Most High is unlike any man-made power, unlike any natural power. This is a supernatural event that's going to take place. The power of the Most High, the Creator's power, is far different from any creature's power. Again, you got to keep in mind that great chasm between creator and creature. The power of the Most High is going to overshadow Mary, and for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. He is to be recognized as the Son of God. He's coming into an earthly existence in the most unique way. He's holy from birth. He's He's brought about into this world through a virgin because of the Holy Spirit coming upon the virgin and God's miraculous supernatural power overshadowing her, causing her to be pregnant with this child. And he is to be recognized as unique, the Son of God. All right? So um, there's a whole bunch of uh, info that we get just from that one verse about what's going on with uh, Jesus entering into the world, the eternal Son becoming the Son in flesh. Wow. Now, he didn't lose any of his deity in this process. That would be a, a wrong way to, to think. There's nothing in Scripture that tells us that he was born as a half-deity or he was born... Uh, you know, as just as a regular child until he turned a certain age and then he became God in flesh. But from the moment of conception in the womb, you have the creator taking on a creaturely existence. From the moment of conception, that's when life begins, by the way. And so that life in her womb, starting at conception, was an amazing combination of divine and human. In uh, theology, in Christian theology, this is called the hypostatic union. Maybe you've heard that term before. What it means is that Jesus Christ in the flesh was truly God and truly man at the same time. Amazing. That is absolutely amazing. Now, I do want to bring up here uh, the LDS view of this doctrine of uh, the virgin birth, how 
the eternal creator, son of God, took on a creaturely existence. Because it is true that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that organization believes in the virgin birth that's, that's stated, that there was a um, virgin conception, virgin birth. Uh, however, this is another one of those points where the definitions are really different. And I struggle to see how that the, the leadership of that organization can say, yes, we believe in the virgin birth. When I go back and look at the ways that the leadership of the LDS religion has talked about this, because I'm going to share with you several quotes here from apostles and uh, presidents of the church, and even from a church manual. And as we look at these, I just struggle to see how that matches with the biblical doctrine of the virgin birth. And so um, let me just show you what I mean. Let's start with, uh, let's start at the beginning. That's a fun phrase to say, right? Let's start at the beginning. So let's start with Brigham Young. In 1860, July of 1860, he said, the birth of the Savior was as natural as are the births of our children, and it was the result of natural action. He partook of flesh and blood, was begotten of his father, as we were of our fathers. He said that July 8, 1860, and you can find that in the Journal of Discourses, 8 115. I've gotten these quotes, by the way, from a, uh, a book titled In Their Own Words. Let me hold that up to the screen. In Their Own Words, it's a uh, com- compilation of LDS quotations. Bill McKeever put this together. It's extremely helpful. All it is is just a book that's sorted by topic, and it has just a ton of quotes with the source listed, the citation for each one, uh, from presidents, apostles, church manuals, etc. So it's extremely helpful. Well, let me go back uh, to that Brigham Young quote. He said that the birth of the Savior was as natural as our births. There's a one-to-one comparison here saying that Jesus' birth was natural, which, again, I, I struggle with here, um, that it was the result of natural action. That's a quote. It was the result of natural action. Jesus' birth was not the result of supernatural action, which is what I would say. The power of the Most High overshadowed Mary. Instead, it was the result of natural action, just like our births. He was begotten of his father as we were of our fathers. Now, again, he's talking about the the coming into the world uh, of Jesus Christ, the birth on earth of Jesus Christ. And he's saying that the natural action that caused Jesus to partake of flesh and blood was that his father begot him. And that's why you'll hear and uh, see in LDS history this idea that the father came down and had sexual intercourse with Mary of some sort. I mean, it would have to be just like ours because that's what is being taught here, that his birth was as natural as the birth of our children, 
and it was the result of natural action. Well, what is that natural action? Well, sexual intercourse. That's the natural action that causes procreation on the face of the earth today, and that's what he had in view. Okay, next quote is from Joseph Fielding Smith. He said, Christ was begotten of God. He was not born without the aid of man, and that man was God. The italics there are original to this quotation, which can be found in Doctrines of Salvation 118. Christ was begotten of God. He was not born without the aid of man. Now, if we just pause right there, you think, okay, what could that mean? Well, he tells us what that means. He was not born without the aid of man. That man was God. He was not born without the aid of man. Hmm. So, um, interpret that how you'd like. I don't see too many good ways to interpret that, but you can read more about it in Doctrines of Salvation 118. Here's Heber Kimball. In relation to the way in which I look upon the works of God and his creatures, I will say that I was naturally begotten. So was my Father. And also my Savior, Jesus Christ. According to the Scriptures, he is the first begotten of his Father in the flesh, and there was nothing unnatural about it. That's from September 2nd of 1860, just a couple months after the Brigham Young quote from above. You can read about that in Journal of Discourses 8 to 11. He says that the begetting of Jesus in the flesh was not unnatural in any way, and I think we could substitute supernatural. He's saying it was not supernatural in any way, but it was totally natural as are the births of children today, which again means that there had to be sexual intercourse happening at some point along the way. If it was a natural conception, then that means there was some form of intercourse that took place. James Talmadge, next quote. We are all spirit sons and daughters of God, but Jesus Christ was and is the Son of God in a superlative and distinctive sense, God the Eternal Father being his Father both in spirit and in flesh. That's from Conference Reports in 1915, April of 1915. Find that on page 123. The Eternal Father is the Father of Jesus in his flesh, is what is said there. Now, again, looking at what we have in the biblical account, it's the Holy Spirit who is coming upon Mary and the power of the Most High overshadowing her. We don't have in the biblical text an idea presented that the Father was the one who came to Mary. We just don't have that in the biblical text. But that seems to be what James Talmadge taught, at least in April of 1915. Bruce R. McConkie had several thoughts on this, so I'm just going to share two of his thoughts. Christ was begotten by an immortal father in the same way that mortal men are begotten by mortal fathers. That phrase, same way, is extremely important. That Christ was begotten by the Father in the same way that you and I were begotten by our creaturely fathers. Again, this has to involve sexual intercourse, teaching some version here of 
the father engaging Mary in sexual intercourse to produce the human body of Jesus Christ. You can find this McConkie quote, by the way, in Mormon Doctrine, the 1966 publication, page 547. The next McConkie quote, this one's pretty important. What does it mean to believe in Christ? That's how he starts it out. It means to accept him as the Son of God in the literal and full sense of the word. It means to believe that God is his Father in the same sense that all mortal men have fathers. So in the last quote, he used the phrase same way. In this quote, he uses the phrase same sense. And he actually is saying that this is what it means to believe in Jesus. What does it mean to have faith in Christ? Well, it means to believe that God the Father, Heavenly Father, uh, made Jesus through sexual intercourse. Because, he says, it means to believe that God is his Father in the same sense that all mortal men have fathers. Well, if you want to examine that quote in its greater context, you can look at The Promised Messiah, The First Coming of Christ, page 294. All right, last one. This is from a a primary manual. Primary one, I am a child of God. I'm not sure what year, but it said at that time at least, tell the children that each of them has two fathers, an earthly father and a heavenly father. Our earthly father is the father of our physical bodies. Heavenly father is the father of the spirits inside our bodies. Jesus has only one father, because Heavenly Father is the Father of Jesus' spirit and his physical body. That is why Jesus is called the Son of God. So, the big statement here for our purposes today is that Heavenly Father is the Father of Jesus' physical body. How could the Father, God the Father, be the literal Father of Jesus' physical body? Well, you gotta got to explain that, and, and the Bible isn't going to get you there. Uh, the Bible is actually going to take you in a different direction when you see, again, Luke chapter 1, that the Holy Spirit is the one who comes to Mary and the power of the Most High overshadows Mary. Um, you don't have the Father with a body coming to Mary and having sex with Mary to produce Jesus. You just don't have that at all in the Bible. And this is an important distinction. Um, So going back to what I said at the beginning, you know, can we just set aside our differences and focus on what we agree on? Well, especially when we go through the New Testament, my question increasingly becomes, what do we even agree on? Because when we say we believe in the virgin birth, and Latter-day Saints say they believe in the virgin birth, we're clearly talking about two different things where these quotes I just went through, I'm extremely uncomfortable with those quotes from a Bible-based perspective because all of my theological beliefs come from the Bible. I can't affirm any of those quotes. And I have to say, well, your definition of the virgin birth is is different than my definition of the virgin birth, and there are ramifications for that, okay? So hopefully that's helpful as we get started. I'm not trying to be you know mean, divisive, fire shots, anything like that. 
I just think it's really helpful for us to examine our differences, to see what the Bible has to say, and uh, to have conversations about it. All right, so that's what I'm doing here. Glad you joined me for the ride today. These episodes might be a little bit longer than they were last year because the content is just so rich. We are talking, after all, about Jesus Christ, the one upon whom all things hinge. So we do well to take our time and and think through this uh, and really arrive at a conviction. All right. Again, thanks for listening. And we'll be back, it looks like, probably later this week with the next lesson looking at the baptism of Jesus Christ. God bless.